like I said in my prayer, we're in a series um, through the book of John. And um, before I get into the text and start reading, I, I, how many of you have seen the movie? It came out in 1993. Some of you weren't born yet. Um, but it's called My Life. Anybody remember that movie? Nobody in this room have seen it? Oh my goodness. Okay, well let me just tell you a little bit about it without spoiling the ending. The movie is uh, Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman. And um, they're a couple, I, I believe, like in Silicon Valley or somewhere out in California. They had, they had left their family and uh, his family's in Ohio. And the movie is all about the character played by Michael Keaton. And uh, Michael Keaton, is um, he finds out his wife is pregnant, which is an amazing thing because they had been trying for a while. But at the same time, that he finds out that she's pregnant, he finds out also that he has terminal cancer in his kidneys. And uh, there's no cure, and, um, and it's just, and they go through all these different things. And as he's exploring, you know, this joy of his son coming, um, he also has this, this fear and this, this journey that he goes through of trying to wrap up his life well. And he's trying to hold on, you know, long enough to see his son born and, and, and to be able to hold him for the first time. But he does this really ingenious thing where he says, you know what, I'm not going to be here um, to be able to teach my son to shave. And so he sets up a video camera and he starts recording all these things that he wishes that he can teach his son he grows up. And so he's, he's standing in the mirror and you see this camera to the side and he says, now son, this is how you shave. Sometimes you shave like this. You know, every once in a while you shave like this, but you never shave like this, you know, going back and forth on the side. And, and then he does another video about, you know, about, about teaching his son how to, how to, how to court a lady and how to dance. And, you know, and he's, you see him dancing with Nicole Kidman. And, and this whole movie is his journey of, of trying to figure out how do I wrap up my life well? How do I say all the things that I want to say? And, one of the big cruxes or big conflicts of the movie is that he didn't leave his family well in, in, back home in Ohio. And, and so he's trying to figure out how do I restore that relationship with my dad and with my mom, with my brothers, and how do I make that end well? Because I only have so much time left on this earth. Have you ever thought about, this is kind of, I don't think it's morbid, but have you ever thought about if I only had a day to live. Who would I want to talk to? And what would I want to say? Have you ever thought that way before? What are those crucial conversations that I want to have with the people that I care about? And sometimes it can be like an estranged relationship, or, or sometimes it's just, you know, I just want to remind my wife and remind my kids these things about how I love them and how I care for them. If I only had 24 hours to live, this is what I want it to be about. I think we all think about that from time to time. This is where we are in the book of John. And this is probably my favorite three or four chapters. In John chapter 13 through John chapters, I think it's 16 or 17, where Jesus is with his last moments with his disciples. It's at the Passover feast. And he is basically 
saying all these things that he was about here on this earth and trying to wrap up well, you know, before he is got, goes to the garden and, is, and is, is, is taken and then eventually crucified, you know, later that next day. This is those last, that last conversation. And so this week and next week, we're going to be diving into a few little tidbits of, of that. If I only had one more moment, this is what I would want to tell you conversations. And you would think that this is probably some pretty important stuff. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your phones or apps or whatever, turn to John chapter 13. We're going to look at John chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. And this is what Jesus says. This is the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will soon give glory to the Son. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Are you ready? Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I'm going to read those two verses one more time. So, so this is the new, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus is saying in the text, this is it. This is the command. This is the new command that I am leaving with you before I am taken to the Father. Love each other. And why this loving each other is so important is because the way that you love each other proves to the rest of this world that you are who you say you are. That they see and understand who God is and that you are one of my followers of the way that I teach by the way that you love and treat those that are around you. It's pretty similar to what Jesus said. If you look in your notes in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31, it says, one of the teachers of the religious law was standing, this is one of the Pharisees, were listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, this is going to be familiar to you, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, The Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And read this next sentence with me. It's bold and underlined. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than what? These. These. So what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that of all the law, and, 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 and actually the Matthew version of this conversation, he says all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands. If you boil down all of the law that I passed before you in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments that I gave you, they can be boiled down to these two things. Loving God and loving people. I put this little phrase in your notes that relationships are everything to God. Relationships are everything. Our relationship with God, he says, this is is the most important thing in your life. But then he says, the second is equally important. Loving your neighbor as yourself. So 
So with these two verses, these two passages in mind, I just have a few things that I want you to take home today about what it means to be in relationship with people and what what does it mean to really, truly love. And the first thought is this, is that love is the primary indicator of a godly life. Love is the primary indicator of a godly life. In this debate that Jesus is having in Mark and actually in, also in Matthew with the religious leaders, he talks about this need, this idea for love to be our center truth. And the group of people that Jesus is talking to are, are the Pharisees. And, and they're the people that Jesus had the most difficulty with. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. And if you want to see Jesus really get mad, Sometimes go, sometimes go back and read chapter Matthew, or Matthew chapter 23, and see how Jesus interacted with these Pharisees. He calls them to their face. He says, you know what? You're just a bunch of scorpions. Living in Arizona, how would you like to be called a bunch of scorpions? Doesn't give a good connotation. He says, not only that in Matthew chapter 23, not only are you just a bunch of scorpions, but you're a bunch of snakes. And in the same chapter, he says, you're just a bunch of caskets. He actually uses the term whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, you look nice and clean, but on the inside you're just full of a bunch of dead junk. I mean, that's some serious slaps in the face, right? The least godly people that Jesus encountered were the most religious. Let that truth sink in. The least godly were the most religious. And Jesus is talking about this and it's blowing everybody away around them. What what they thought, what these Pharisees thought was godly is what we would call legalism. They were really good at following rules. The rules of the Old Testament, they were good at following those rules. As a matter of fact, they not only followed those rules, but they made up their own rules to make it even harder to be a follower of what they thought was a follower of God. And so they were great at following the rules. They were great rule followers, but they didn't love God. And they certainly didn't love other people. He says, he's saying this, if If you don't get this, if you miss this, you miss it all. The greatest evidence that you are a follower of Christ is how you love people. It's not your church attendance and how often you come on Sundays, even though we would love for you to be here every week. It's it's not how many scriptures you memorize, even though I think it's very important to hide God's word in our hearts. I think it's crucially important as a follower of Jesus. But that doesn't indicate your godliness. And it's not even, I know this is going to sound sacrilegious coming from a pastor, or a little bit weird. You might think, oh, Jared's gone off the deep end. But it's not even how much you give to the church. It's not even how much you tithe that indicates how godly you are. Jesus says this. He says, you want to know what makes you godly or not godly? It's how you love people. He says, this is how you will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. If God lives in you, his love pours out of you. A church in California got themselves into a little bit of trouble. They made the news a couple years ago for all the wrong reasons. It was a a church in in San Francisco. And outside of their church, they had these 
grand, beautiful archways that were just stunning to look at. But the problem is, is that in San Francisco at different times of the year, there are a very large homeless population. And they started to get really frustrated with the fact that homeless people were sleeping underneath their archways at night. And if you think about it, that can cause some problems for a church you know, to have homeless people camping outside because some of the homeless people were also, you know, leaving a lot of trash and sometimes other little bit more disgusting things lying around that they were having to clean up and sometimes couldn't clean up before people who were worshiping there would come. And so this was their answer. They decided to put sprinklers out. And they hung sprinklers from the top of the archways, not because there was grass underneath it, but because they set the timers to turn on every 30 minutes throughout the night. And it started at dusk and went till dawn. And so for 30 minutes, every 30 minutes, every night, sprinklers would come on and drench anybody who was sleeping underneath that archway. News found out about it. Radios picked up on it. And all of a sudden, this church had a major crisis. Now look, I get it. There are complications from time to time. But there has to be a better way of being loving to people who find themselves in the worst position in life. They drove away the very people that God sent us here to help. It's a great picture of why the rest of the world looks at us from time to time and says, you know what, I don't get you people. You say you're followers of Jesus, and you look at who Jesus hung out with in his life, and how he ministered to them, and who he chose to care for, and you say you follow his teachings and his way, but you act so contrary to his heart. If you go back and you look in your text in John thirteen thirty-five, what does it say? By this everyone will know that you are my disciples. What? Read it with me, it's in your notes. If you love one another... In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's writing to the church. And sometimes you have to, you have to read between the lines on why Paul brings up certain issues when he's writing letters to this church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's writing to the church in Corinth and he's saying, hey guys, you're a body. Okay? We're all part of one body. Some of us are arms and some of us are legs and some of us are this and some of us are that. And we all serve a different function. And then he says this, some parts of the body that we want to hide, that we think are less desirable, are the very ones that God wants to honor. And he says that we all have a place and a part and we all have to understand this truth. And not only that, he says all of you have been given spiritual gifts. And he starts talking about what those gifts are. And he says, we have a tendency, now this is a Jared paraphrase, we have a tendency to think some gifts are better than other gifts, and some gifts receive more honor than other gifts. But he says, all the gifts serve the same purpose of honoring God, and they're to all be celebrated. Now the reason he's bringing these things up is because the church was at that time was having a problem. They were having a problem of looking at certain members of their church and saying, hey, you're not as honorable as this part because you serve this function and this person serves this other function. And so Paul is saying, hey, 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 guys, stop the fighting. We're all in this together. And then listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, just to make myself really clear, if I could speak 
all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secrets, plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, and did not love others, what? I would be nothing. It's not the gift of the Spirit that defines you as a follower of Jesus. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit. And what's the first fruit that Paul lists when he lists the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, love, love. Here's a second thought. Love is how you act, not just how you feel. How many of you have ever had someone who told you they loved you, but they didn't always act in loving ways? Anybody? Yeah. How many of you believed their actions and not their words? Yeah. Right. Because what is the little saying? Actions speak louder than words. Right. Your actions, they tell me what your heart's all about. And when we talk about love, this is so important. We say, as followers of Jesus, we would all say, hey, I love everybody. Right? I'm a follower of Jesus. I love everybody. Of course my family knows I love them. Of course my wife knows. Of course my kids know. Of course my pastor knows that I love him. Of course my friends know that I, I hope you say that, that I, that I love them. And the question I have is this. Do they really? Do they? And how do they know? Do they know just because you provide a home for them? Is that really truly loving? Maybe. Maybe it's a part of it. But I would say this, that it's by what you do for them. Love is an action. I can watch your life and how you interact with these other people, and I can tell you if you truly love them. It's by what you do. He writes this, Paul does, in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is what? Say it with me. Patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Say it. Or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not... Do we need to amen on that one? Let's say that one more time. It is not irritable. Now, how many of you would say, you know what, I have a few things that I need to work on this week? We could end right there. That is what love is. Love is taking this feeling that is here and here and moving it to here and here. It's to take what's in our heart and what's in our heads and let it come out of our mouths and through our hands. That is love. Here's a third truth. Is that love is about how we treat all people, not just some people. Now this starts to sting a little. It's the way we treat those who are closest to us. Love is the way we treat those who are closest to us. The word neighbor that's in that, that Mark chapter, to love your neighbor, it actually means near one. The one close to us. Our family is the nearest ones to us, right? But the hard truth is it is our family is sometimes the ones that we treat the worst. The old saying, you remember, familiarity 
breeds contempt. Anybody heard that before? It's really true. It's the truth that, you know what? I can, I can be mean to my wife because I know she's not going anywhere. And when I come home at the end of the day, she's going to be there at the house. And if that's true... <laughs> Well, if you know my wife, that may not be completely true. I'm just using this as an illustration, right? And if we think that way, can I say this? What a shame. What a shame. The Bible is really clear that if if there is anyone that we should be treating well, it's those who we are supposed to love the most. Paul and Peter, in both of their letters, they talk to husbands and they say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says, Wives... Honor your husbands. And he says, kids, um, respect your fathers and mothers. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. They sp- both spent a lot of time talking about how do we care and love and respect and honor each other. It's the way that we treat those we don't have to love. There's an article by a pastor of a large church. And he was talking about, a friend of mine were discussing what he read. He says, he says one, when he's interviewing someone to come on his staff, he takes them to dinner. And when he takes them to dinner, he, uh, he, for the sole purpose to see how, he, how they treat the person at the hostess stand and how they treat the waiters and how they treat the busboys and how they treat everybody around them. Because he wants to know how he's going to treat those that are there to serve them. Because the truth is, is they are there to serve him and he wants to know how they are going to before he ever hires them he wants to see how they interact with the people that are there to serve them i've heard a lot of waiters tell me that sunday afternoons are their least favorite time to work in a restaurant many waiters have told me that truth here's a third thought it's the way that we treat those who are different from us the kid at school that's a little different it's not social he's a little introverted they're not, sometimes we're just not nice to them. It's a person with a disability or a different color skin or from a different country or speak a different language. We don't always treat people well who are different from us. Here's a fourth thought. It's the way we treat those who are difficult to love. How many of you have some people in your life that are just difficult to love? How many of you are willing to admit that you might be that person in someone else's life that's difficult to love? I saw a few more hands raise a little bit quicker. That's me. That's me. But love is how we treat those people that are difficult to love. Jesus said this, if you love only those who love you, what reward is that? What reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Bob Lees was a computer programmer in the 90s, and in 1994, he was traveling all over the country, going from company to company doing computer programming. He said he would leave on a Monday, and he would fly back on a Friday, and he earned a lot of, of airline miles and during that, those years. And because he was earning all those airline miles, that he would often get free bumps in, in, in to first class in these airlines. He says, that was the epitome of my success was being able to move from coach to first class. Because he says, man, when you fly first, you don't want to fly anywhere else. The seats are bigger. The food is better. You recline your own personal TV. They're cushy. You can sleep. He says it's amazing. He loved it. He often had to fly from L.A. to New York and New York to L.A. Long flights. I don't even know how long it is, but I'm sure it's five-plus hours. 
And so he got bumped up from a flight from New York to L.A. and he was going home. And uh, so he got in his first class seat. He was the very last first class seat before coach. And as he sat down, one of the the, uh, flight attendants came in with two little kids, a six and a seven-year-old brother and sister. And he put them, they put them right behind his seat. He was like, oh my goodness, what a flight, you know. He starts thinking of all the possible problems. He says that the flight took off. The attendants were doing the best job they could. And these were pretty good kids. But when you have two kids without parental support flying on an airplane, he says things just get messy. He said about 45 minutes into the flight, they've already colored all their pages. They've already done all their stuff. And now they're bored out of their mind. And there's four and a half hours to go. And they're starting to bicker. And they're starting to argue. And they're starting to get loud. And everybody in first class keeps doing the shoulder look with the eye roll. Like, who's going to take care of this? And he said, all of a sudden, a woman in first class got up, went and talked to the flight attendant, and then sat down next to these two kids. And she loved on them. She got other coloring pages out. She started playing games. and She sat right in the middle, and the two kids leaned in, and she was reading them stories. And for four and a half hours, she just loved on these two kids. And everybody in first class just wanted to applaud her. Like, thank the Lord, you saved our flight. When they landed, she was one of the first to get up and walk off the plane. And he says, you'll never believe who it was. He said, it was Dolly Parton. He said, this is the truth. He says, when you see Dolly Parton up on stage, she's got the big smile and she's full of life. And you just think, I bet she's a nice person. And he said, that day I discovered that she was. That she really was. Of all the people that were sitting in first class, she probably had the right to be there. But she went back and she loved on two little kids and poured her life. Love is not how we treat some people. It's how we treat all people. Here's one last quick thought. The truth about love is to let God love through us. We have to let his love in us. The first, he says, is to love God with everything in us. If we're going to love others, we have to let his love in us. We have to first build that relationship with him. And another piece is this, is that if you're truly going to love other people, this scripture says that you have to love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how do we begin to begin to love ourselves? We understand how God loves us. We understand how God sees us. We understand how how wildly he pursued us, even to the point of giving up his life on a cross for me. That I was on his mind when he gave his life for sin. And until you do let God's love in you, his love can't flow through you. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 says this, this is real love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Read this last part with me. Since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Out of the overflow of God's love pouring in our lives. It's like a cup. We just can't hold it all. 
And as he keeps pouring that love in, it's got to go somewhere. And it spills out into people's lives around us.